Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. One of the gifts of practice is, uh, I find, is a sense of wonder and um, discovery at things that otherwise appear quite ordinary, like rain. You ever thought about rain? That water falls from the sky? It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Or speech, that we have this capacity to create a bridge from what's here to what's here with words, with sound. And there's, there's something that happens. There's, there's understanding. There's, there's a connection that's made. There's been some work done in the last um, 40 years or so in evolutionary psychology um, that's come up with an interesting theory about the origin of language. Uh, this man by the name of Robert Dunbar was studying social groups and primates. And um, what he found was that, um, or what he theorized was that the, the size of a group was um, connected to the size of the neocortex. And that um, the size of a group was limited by the number of social relationships each individual was able to keep track of. And the larger the neocortex, the, uh, the larger the, that number of relationships an individual could keep track of, and therefore the larger the group could be. And so uh, he theorized, he created a little formula and came up with a, a range um, that said you know, that human groups, based on the, the, his findings, uh, sort of maxed out somewhere between 100 and 230. And the number that's usually used is about 150. It's called Dunbar's number. He <laughs> says that, uh, you know, at, at about that size, humans, according to this theory, you know, might lose the ability to track important social connections and relationships. So in, uh, in our, our you know, cousins of apes and chimpanzees and so forth and primates, the, um, the function of maintaining social relationships is done a lot through grooming. And one of the theories was that language arose as a more efficient way of tracking and maintaining social relationships. Who's done what for whom? You know, who's dangerous, who to stay away from, who's helpful, what our history is. And for me, when I reflect on that experientially, it makes a lot of sense that our words really do connect us. And that that's one of the main functions that our language serves, is this, this uh, way of maintaining a web of relationships. And along those lines, we can, we can reflect just on our origins as a species that you know, we, we are by nature um, social beings. We, we grew up 
in social groups. Um, we're dependent. You know, a, a human a human child can't survive, literally can't survive, without other humans, without love, without affection. Right? They've done studies that show that babies need to be held, to be touched, that the brain actually doesn't develop without human contact and warmth. In uh, indigenous cultures, the worst punishment isn't death. It's exile. It's not having a place. It's not having connection. That's the worst punishment. There's exclusion from the group. Because when we were living more uh, directly in relationship with the elements, exile effectively meant death because we couldn't do it alone. So what does all this mean for our practice? Our, our practice of, um, of freedom, of awakening, our practice of speech in that context, that we're so rooted in this sense of relationship and community. I think one of the great tragedies of um, Dharma practice, specifically here in the West, is the misinterpretation, the misapplication, from, from my view, of the teachings as a form of isolation and disconnection from relationship. And I think if, if we look on the surface, it's very easy to see where that comes from. You know, in the suttas, the Buddha says, you know, Oh, monks, go to the root of a tree and meditate. It's a lot of emphasis on solitude. Uh, I, was, I was looking for a quote online um, earlier in the Parinibbana Sutta, the sutta that, that describes the, uh, the death and passing of the Buddha. And uh, I didn't find what I was looking for. It's in there somewhere, but it's a very long sutta. Uh, but I found something else that was the opposite of what I was looking for. But... Um, but is relevant, you know. So the Buddha says in, uh, in this sutta, at one point, he's talking to his attendant Ananda, and he says, Ananda and monks, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. That sounds pretty clear, huh? So it's easy to see how one can read that and take that and think, okay, you know, none of these other people matter. Don't put any energy into relationships. Just be an island, be separate, work this out for myself. But he goes on, the Buddha goes on, and he says, and how is a monk, a practitioner, an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge? With the Dhamma as his island, the Dhamma as his refuge. You know what he says? This is the four foundations of mindfulness. He says, he dwells contemplating the body and the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending, mindfully. He contemplates feelings and feelings. He contemplates mind objects and mind objects. He contemplates mental processes and dhammas as mental processes. 
In other words, he contemplates the totality of his experience, the totality of her experience. So I don't think the Buddha was encouraging us to cut off from anything. I think he was pointing to look inward, but to also include everything. So, a very particular thing happens when you take this tradition out of an Asian cultural and historical context and bring it into a very isolated, individualistic society like we have here in the West. You get people to sit quietly by themselves and close their eyes. <clears throat> and today, this fragmentation it has, a, has a particular uh, irony to it where we can have this incredible sense of connection online, right, and yet still feel so disconnected. I had uh, a first experience just uh, about a week ago. I was up in Vermont um, sitting and serving my teacher on a retreat, and um, I got in very late at night. It was pouring rain, and it was very, it's a very small retreat center called Sky Meadow in Vermont. It's a wonderful place. And um, there's this barn with the lights just coming out at night. And it's the middle of nowhere in Vermont. <clears throat> so there's this really warm feeling, you know, as I, as I approach through the rain. And I don't know if I'm going to know anyone there. And I walk in with my bags. And there's a couple of people sitting at a table having tea. And this one young man looks up. And he says, oh, you're Oren. And I felt so, I felt so welcomed. I was like, yeah, that's great. Do we know each other? Or, you know, how do we, I don't, I don't recognize you. You know, how do you know, how do you know? He says, oh, we're Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out I, I, I registered him for his first yogi job at IMS some 10 years ago or 12 years ago, you know. <clears throat> so, but I think this characterizes something about our situation today. I, I think the tendency in terms of relationship, and Donald's talked about this a little bit this week, can be to fall on the side of one of two extremes. And as we know, the Buddha's teachings and the Buddha's path is the middle path. And so in relationship, as, as I see it, these two extremes are on the one hand leaning on relationship. So that I think we all know people who uh, can't be alone, will do anything to keep from being alone. And we lean on relationships. We always need to have some, someone to talk to, something to do, some kind of activity there. Right? That's one extreme. And then the other extreme is uh, you know, being a hermit, cutting off, disconnecting. I want to just maybe refine being a hermit because I don't think it has to do with where you live or how many people you see. It has to do with how you're relating. So you can be in the midst of a lot of people and still be cut off, or you can be living alone but not be cut off. Right? So it has to do with just that quality of, of cutting off. And so what's the middle path between those extremes? How do we stay balanced and present and open-hearted in relationship? How do we let ourselves be affected? As I spoke about a little the other night, to me, awakening 
is the ability to include all of experience, to not exclude anything. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is community or sangha and including relationship in practice, or rather making relationship a part of practice as we've been doing this week. So in some sense, on this kind of a retreat, I was reflecting, I think I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, right? Because I don't think you'd be here if you didn't value connection and relationship. So more the intention is actually to um, support that intention that you've already come with and really helps to strengthen seeing our lives' relationships and our interactions as an integral part of our practice, rather than as something separate or something that we're trying to um, include. If we look at the Buddha's teachings, there's a lot of very clear, strong uh, support for for understanding community and relationship as the very path of practice. Uh, from the very beginning, you know, to um, enter the Buddha's order as a monk or a nun 2,600 years ago, uh, initially what one, what one did to do that was to take refuge. And we spoke about this at the beginning of the retreat, to recognize that um, our, our source of safety and shelter um, isn't to be found in fleeting experiences, in uh, collecting as many uh, moments of pleasure and excitement as we can, but it's to be found uh, traditionally in the Triple Gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And Donald spoke about how we can understand this, both as the historical Buddha or as the potential for awakening, as the teachings themselves, um, or as in the natural law or natural order of things. And the Sangha. What is this word, this, the Sangha, to take refuge in the Sangha? So Sangha literally means to be joined together, that which is joined together. Hence the understanding of community. And um, classically this is understood in two ways. One is called uh, the Samuti Sangha, which is the, the actual uh, monastic order of monks and nuns, and what's also called the fourfold sangha, which is the monks, the nuns, laymen, and laywomen, so the whole body. And uh, this was the quote I was looking for in the sutta earlier. Uh, when the Buddha was dying, one of the things that he said was, you know, I, I, um, I feel that I can go now, I can leave now, because the fourfold sangha has been established. The community has been established. And he spoke at length about the conditions under which the community would continue to flourish. You know, that, that you meet regularly with a sense of goodwill, sharing openly, and so forth. And contemplating this sangha, the monastic sangha, has a certain strength, I've found. Uh, there's a sense of connection for me that comes in contemplating the lineage that for 2,600 years these teachings have been carried on and preserved from living person to living person. This, this wisdom and the awakening of the Buddha 
has been transmitted as, as lived wisdom, not as intellectual learning or something written down, but as a lived understanding. And it's because of that unbroken lineage that we're able to be here today, that this, this whole incredible center and movement across the West is, is happening because of the work, of the time, of the diligence of many, many people just like you and me who devoted their lives, who gave their lives for the purpose of awakening, for the benefit of others. And this, with this kind of reflection can come a deep sense of gratitude. And we can, we, can, we can feel a sense of refuge in that unbroken lineage of teachers that, we've all, that we're all connected to. The Sangha that's a refuge, though, is not the monastic Sangha, surprisingly enough. The Sangha that's a refuge is called the Arya Sangha, or the Noble Sangha. And uh, that's the Sangha of beings who have realized some level of awakening. And that's about heart. It's not about robes. It's not about being a man or a woman, being old or young. It's about heart. And that's something that we can trust, that purity And it's a great blessing to come in contact with those who have some level of awakening and realization. There are other ways we can understand and use this word sangha that I find very valuable in my own practice. Uh, One is just the understanding of a sangha as a community of practitioners, a community with um, a shared set of values that there's a sense of um, aspiration that's shared. Uh, my teacher, Ajahn Sachito, talks about it as um, Sangha as an organism that occurs as an alignment of intentions, of heart qualities and heart aspirations. Like These are like magnetic forces that we have towards purity, towards truth, towards love, towards wisdom, towards freedom. And so this sense of alignment of intention is something that we can organize around, that we can create community around, and that we have a set of rules that we abide by, and that it's within this framework of shared intention that there can begin to be a balance of the individual, which by its nature is at odds with community, because a group is, is about cohesion, is about um, togetherness, Whereas an individual, by definition, is, is has um, you know sense of separateness, my views, my what I would like, but because of the shared intention, because of the uh, momentum and energy of having shared aspiration, we sacrifice, we we let go of certain things, because we're all heading in a certain direction. And as I think we we've all experienced over the course of this week. Uh, there's a certain strength and energy that comes from practicing together. You know, when you sit in the hall and the body hurts and the mind is restless and you'd really just rather go take a walk or have a cup of tea, but you don't. Because we're here together and we support each other in that. 
There's also a very, uh, a very wonderful thing that happens with community. And when there's openness, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but not, no one of us needs to know everything. Right? It's one of the beauties of this kind of retreat where we have time to share. That if, uh, and one of the beauties of teaching in a team, that you know, if I leave something out, Donald remembers. And if Donald leaves something out, often I'll remember. And in the same way, when we share, you know, the wisdom that comes collectively from our group is much greater and much more stable than the view that might come from, say, just me or just Donald and I. But it, it takes a certain openness and a certain humility to, to recognize that and to draw upon it as a source of strength and wisdom. Another way to understand Sangha as expanding, so we're, we're expanding out, expanding, expanding, uh, is just the community of all beings, of all life. This is not per se a traditional understanding, but it's one that makes a lot of sense to me and that I find a huge support. And uh, it's grounded in reality. Right? It's quite clear from our understanding of things, that everything is interconnected on this, not only on the planet, but in the whole cosmos, but that the whole planet itself, right, can be seen as a living organism. That we're a part of this community. And again, reflecting on, on that, uh, many people in the interviews have talked about the, um, the softening and the sense of uh, a beauty and meaning that's come from spending time in nature and feeling the connection with the trees or the birds, some of the animals. This is, this is another benefit of community is that it can begin to, to touch and to soothe and to heal some of our isolation, some of our separation that characterizes our culture today so strongly. I know for me, a lot of what's really shaped who I am today and how I relate to practice um, it was experiences growing up of um, feeling very excluded. You know, not, not in kind of terrible, traumatic ways, but uh, in ways that still had an impact. Sort of in, my, in my family growing up, I always felt like the odd man out, like I somehow didn't fit. Everyone, but the everyone else kind of was on the same wavelength, and I was just sort of this odd creature stuck in there. Um, and then just a number of experiences growing up where I had a circle of friends who I was close with, and something happened, and and all of a sudden I found myself on the outside, pushed out. You know, I think we can all relate to this. It's very, very, very common growing up. You know, sort of all the whims of the social social circles. <clears throat> but th these can leave impressions that then create a certain tendency in us. And so for me, that's it's really created um, uh, an interest and a yearning to explore this, explore what is this being here together. Which brings me to the, the last way 
uh, to understand Sangha, which is uh, a nuanced understanding and, and somewhat of an interpretation, which is understanding Sangha as the relational field itself. That community, right, by definition, means relationship. Community means there's more than one person, and that's dependent upon relationship. So, going back to understanding the Buddha's teachings, if we look in the suttas, the Buddha was most of the time surrounded by scores of monks. You read the suttas, and there were 40 monks, and the retinue of 80 bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. And, uh, and the Buddha spoke to an assembly of a hundred. There's lots of people. And they move around together. You know, it's, it's the rare occasion that the Buddha says, okay, I need a break. I'm going to go off in this grove and take some time to myself. Also, it's important, I think, to understand the, the historical and cultural context in Asia where um, the family unit is so strong. And the sense of the group is um, kind of just a, just a given. It's sort of just a fabric in the part of life from a very small age. You know, there's a very clear sense of the group. And the sense of the individual is, is, is really secondary. You know, and obviously there's strengths and weaknesses to, to both of these. But uh, so these, these teachings are coming out of that kind of a context. It's also interesting to contemplate the, um, the way the Buddha set things up for the monks was that, and the nuns is that they're dependent on relationship. Right? So here's this tradition with the Buddha saying, be a refuge unto yourself. Seek no external refuge. And yet, if the monastic sangha did not have connections and relationships with lay people, they wouldn't eat. They wouldn't have medicine. They wouldn't have clothes. Because their training rules forbid them from doing that. So the very nature and setup of the practice was one of dependence, was one of connection and relationship. And if you look at the Patimoka, the training rules for the monks and the nuns, most of it is about how to get along. <laughs> most of it is, is about these monks went here and they did this and these lay people got really upset about it. And so they come back and the Buddha says, okay, from now on, don't do that. <laughs> right? So the 237 or some odd rules that the monks follow are really about how to live in community, how to be together. So it's clear if, if we look with this, with this lens that the sense of relationship and connection is very integral to the teachings and to the whole sort of context of the practice. And the Buddha talked about relationship in a few key ways. And I'd like I'd like to uh, I'd like to reflect on these on on, on two of them in, in specific, specifically. The first, and I referred to this earlier when I was talking about the wisdom of the of the group. Um, one of the monks' training rules is something called uh, 
pavarana, which means an invitation, and uh, or sometimes translated as a, an admonition. And uh, I think Donald gave out uh, one of the handouts on wise speech about how to admonish someone skillfully, basically how to give someone feedback. And the training rule is that if one of your brothers or sisters says that they have something to share with you, some kind of feedback, you can't say no. You can say not now, you know, it's not a good time, or let's wait. But it's, part, it's an offense to say no. It's breaking a training rule. Why is that? I mean, the Buddha thought it was that important that he made it one of the training rules, that you have to receive feedback from others. Because we can't see the back of our own head. Right? We, can't, we, all, we all have blind spots. And as my, as my teacher says, you know, on a personal level, it's embarrassing. On a personal level, I don't really want to know about it. But on a Dhamma level, yeah, I'd like to know. Right? I'd like to know. Because that's my aspiration. It's to wake up. To leave no stone unturned. And the Buddha talked about it. He used an analogy of uh, the four horses. He said, it's like training. He says, you know, this sense of, of relationship in this way, of giving feedback, he says, is like training horses. He said, some horses need only the shadow of the whip, and they get it. Just the slightest hint or suggestion, and they, and they get the points, and they take the feedback and go with it. The second kind of horse needs just a little touch, just a little bit of indication. And then they they take the course correction. The third kind of horse, sometimes you really need to lay into. You really need to be firm and clear and strong. And then they take the feedback. He said that there's a fourth kind of horse that just doesn't get it. And the monks asked, and you know, Venerable One, what do you do with those kinds of horses? And the Buddha says, oh, I kill them. And they said, but you're a Tathagata, and Tathagatas don't kill. How do you mean you you kill them? And the Buddha said, well, in this Dhamma, by killing people, I mean, I just don't admonish them. And that's their destruction. Because if no one's going to give you any feedback, you're lost. Right? How are we going to grow? How are we going to learn? That's how important it was. So as an ideal, it's quite, it can be quite inspiring to contemplate the Dhamma and think about growing and learning. But an ideal can't do that. An ideal can't give you feedback. It can't hold up a mirror. Only a person can do that. Which is why, as Donald was saying last night, referring to the Lojong teachings in, in the Tibetan tradition, that one's enemy is to be regarded as a precious treasure. Because they provide that. They show us where we can't see, where we're stuck, where we're caught, where these latent tendencies of anger, of fear, 
resentments might lie. The Buddha uh, thought that he, 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 spoke, he spoke specifically also about a certain kind of relationship as being key. And then he called that relationship Kalyanamita, which is sometimes translated as spiritual friends. The word mita is friends connected to, to the word meta, for kindness, right? So spiritual friend or wise friend, or sometimes just translated as a good friend. And um, what, what what is this kind of a friend? The Buddha uh, said there's seven qualities that constitute such a friend. He said that this kind of a person gives what's difficult to give. He or she does what's difficult to do. They patiently endure what's difficult to endure. They reveal their own secrets and keep your secrets. They don't, excuse me, they don't abandon you in misfortune. When you're down and out, they stick around. And they don't despise you or look down upon you because of your loss. What's difficult to do? To stand by a friend when they're really, really struggling? To show up and offer empathy and not try to change or fix someone else's pain? That's difficult. It's a really great blessing to have connections like this in our lives. He said it was so important. He said, I do not see even one other thing by means of which the qualities of awakening that have not arisen and the cultivation of the Eightfold Path that has not been completed would come to fulfillment and develop so effectively as by this one factor, good friendship. It's one of the two main supports that the Buddha singled out. The other is wise Wise attention, careful attention. That's the internal factor. When we attend carefully to our experience, noticing what leads to suffering and what doesn't. And in terms of the external factors, he said, good friendship. It's the one thing of all the things to help develop these qualities and and further one's cultivation of the path. How do we understand this, 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 this weight, this emphasis on, uh, on good friendship? From a very sort of practical perspective, I don't think any of us would be here if it wasn't for, uh, you could say, the voice of another. The voice of another. 
be it in the form of a book or a friend, right? We come into contact with the teachings through another being. So this is the doorway to to our, our practice. And it's, it's an arduous journey. It's a long and arduous journey. And uh, it'd be pretty bleak if we didn't have some company. You know? Someone to turn to for support. Someone to ask for reflections from. An example. Someone to inspire us. I find... I learn as much, if not more, just from being around a teacher. I, I spent uh, three and a half months in England this past winter at my teacher's monastery, Chithurst, in the south, southwest of London. And I really, uh, I really feel that just, just sharing space and sharing time something's transmitted you know the way he walks into the hall seeing how he would sit up late after everyone else had left just how he takes time with things there's there's not a hurry you know and then, and it checks it, it it would check my mind it's like oh yeah right where am i going What's what's the rush? What's what's the cascade of momentum here? You know? And the things that he didn't do, seeing what what he didn't bother with or take time with, you know those those kinds of choices. There's a beautiful saying in uh, from the Sufi tradition it says, um, see if I can remember it. Something like. Uh, the child learns to speak though, though, though it has no learned teachers, right? How do children learn to speak? You just, they're just around people who know how to speak and they just pick it up. Spending time with people who are more awake than we are, it's the same thing. You just, oh, right, yeah, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> There's another, another off, often quoted uh, passage uh, from the suttas on, on relationship where Ananda, the, uh, the Buddha's attendant, comes to him and says, you know, oh, venerable sir, it's wonderful, it's marvelous. It, it appears to me that this spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. It's half of, you know, the path of awakening. And the Buddha says, don't say so, Ananda. Do not say so. It is the whole of the holy life. the whole of the holy life. So put that alongside of the quote I read towards the beginning. Be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourself, seeking no external refuge. And yet he says spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life. Right? 
I don't think he meant cut yourself off from others when he said be an island or a refuge unto yourself. I think he was saying don't lean. Don't take, don't take anything as a support because it's going to crumble. But be connected. Be here. Be fully here. That's the whole thing, is, is being here, is letting life touch you. Because what is spiritual friendship? What, what is friendship? It's, it's warmth, right? It's presence. And so much of our practice, right? This is, and this is, where, this is where the two meet. When we sit, when we practice, what do we practice? We practice bringing a kind and warm attention to our experience, accepting what's happening and knowing it as it is with kindness. And what is it to have a friend? It's to receive and give that kind of attention. Unconditional, warm, accepting presence. And so for me, so much of the time, I feel that my friendships teach me how to be with myself or have taught me how to be with myself. When we find it hard to bring warmth and tenderness to ourselves, we can think of someone else who loves us, right? This is why in the metta practice, sometimes we start with a benefactor or a mentor. Because then we can access that quality. Someone else shows us how to, how, how to relate in that way by offering it to us. And then our system says, all right, I, I remember what that feels like. I remember the way her eyes looked at me, my grandmother. I remember the way he smiled at me. I remember how that felt. And now I can, I can bring that. I can bring that kind of attention to my experience. And then it goes the other way. The more we do that, the more we're able to then extend that outward to others, to the experience that we meet. Spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life, bringing this kind of attention, this kind of presence and openness and balance to our experience, internally and externally. No boundaries, no separation, nothing excluded. And so what are the places that we do exclude? I think this is, this is what we're what we're starting to touch now in these last days of the retreat is those difficult situations like Donald spoke about last night, those really challenging situations and people in our lives, right? Those are the places that we want to kind of cordon off, to sort of segment. Okay, that piece over there I'm just not going to deal with. And sometimes that's skillful if it comes from an intention to balance to say this is too much right now, I'm not gonna really deal with this until I'm balanced. But it has that intention of balancing. There's just an intention to come back rather than just to push away. As I, as I started 
off saying, you know, this sense of, of excluding can be one of the most painful experiences, I think, of being human. And it can be a tremendous teacher. A teacher in patience, a teacher in opening our heart. I have a very, very close friend who uh, I was just spending time with on the East Coast. We've known each other since high school, since, even before that, but we really started becoming close in high school. And um, he's a musician. We've been working on some music together. And um, for years, it was very, very painful for me. He's one of my closest friends that I would call or I would write, and I wouldn't hear back. And I didn't understand. I couldn't understand. You know? I knew that he cared about me. I knew that we were friends. And sometimes it almost felt like the more I reached out, the more he pulled away. You know that one? Right? So painful. But I stayed with it because I cared about him and I trusted him. And I just stayed, I just stayed, I just stayed, I was just steady. I just kept showing up and just offering who I am, you know, just being myself, being kind, being friends. And slowly over the years, he started being able to call me back. Just a couple weeks ago, we were uh, standing in his kitchen, talking in between mixing and editing some of the music we were working on. I gave him some feedback. <laughs> I was admonishing him. Because we have that kind of a relationship. It's a relationship that's based in truth. And I said, hey man, you know, are you open to just hearing... Uh, Hearing some feedback. He said, yeah, sure. So I was really straight with him. And I just told him a couple things I had observed. Because he had given me some feedback earlier, which was really on point, really useful to me. And I heard it, and I said, you know, that's, that's great, man. Thank you. Um, and so I, fe I felt the invitation to reciprocate based on that. And so I asked him about, you know, just some of the resistance he was having to a certain kind of collabor collaborative way of working that I'm very prone to. You know, he'd be working on something and I'd say, oh, hey, let's try this, or how about doing it that way? And he'd get very upset and very tense and rigid. And sometimes it was almost like he would be shutting down ideas that I thought would be really helpful. And I said, you know, I don't know if it's just some sense of pride or, you know, just a lack of humility, but it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's such a great, such a great quality. I just wanted to offer that. And uh, he started sharing about um, what it's been like for him uh, his whole life, how uh, terrified he's been to let anyone in. His father died when he was quite young, said very suddenly, and he found him. 
in the bathroom on the floor. He was maybe four or six years old. Very traumatic. And that one day, you know, defined the rest of his life and his relationships. And for the first time, I saw him cry. And he said, you know, you, you're one of my closest friends because no matter what, you just, you just stuck with me. He said, I've pushed almost everyone else away. And they let me. He said, I pushed them away because I was afraid of getting hurt. I get angry, you know, I don't call people back. And they just gave up. He said, but you didn't. So the cha- our challenging situations c- can sometimes be, you know, our greatest gifts. If we meet them, if we meet them. The teachings of the Buddha are radical in that they invite us to, 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 to do this, this turn, this shift um, of perspective. Our tendency is to not want to feel or go into our pain or our suffering. And the Buddha says, actually, if you go there, that's the doorway to freedom. The only way out is through. And it's the same with our relationships. Can we turn towards that difficulty with balance? with balance. Can we use the tools that we've been cultivating this week, the tools of empathy, the tools of staying connected and grounded to ourself as we encounter the presence of others, of another? There was a question this afternoon about, you know, the most challenging situations people who just seem to have no compassion, and how do you deal with them? One very useful reflection is to attune to the suffering of another, to understand that those actions are coming out of confusion, out of ignorance, and out of pain. When we can see the suffering of another, something changes. There's no longer the separation. And so much, I think, of this practice, and in particular, this, this practice as relationship is about healing that sense of separation that we all feel, because that's the nature of the self. The, the self, by definition, means separate. That sense of there's something wrong with me. That's a self, and we all think we're the only one who has it. So not only can we turn towards these difficulties and challenges, meet them, but we can actually begin to investigate what is the sense of separation? Who are other people? Have you noticed how many people are here with you on this retreat from your life? Thought you left them at home, right? (laughs) Where are they? 
Where do they live? Other people. Really investigate, really take a look. This concept of me and you that defines so much of our experience in our life. When we understand that deeply, being an island unto ourself, a refuge unto ourself, seeking no external refuge takes on a different meaning. When there's no separation. And it takes time. It's a process. Stage by stage, we, we, we soften, we, we, we expand to meet our edge. We regroup, we stabilize, we expand a little further. Right? And we, we build trust in this way. We, we build trust with ourselves, which is the most important place to build it. That we're not going to push ourselves past our actual limit or capacity that we have the strength and the resources to take care of ourselves in challenging situations. That's why we've been emphasizing the training. We train in safe situations and protected in a protected container. We train with, uh, you know, on the bunny hill first. We don't, we don't go straight to the ten. We start small and slowly, slowly we increase. And what happens is that somatically our relationship with difficulty, with with challenge shifts from one of tightening and freezing to one of being able to relax into it. But that only happens when when we when we establish a relationship of trust with ourselves. When we when we give ourselves the space and the time to move at our own pace. Say, okay, this is enough for now. Now I stop here. We have the intention, we have the aspiration to meet and include everything, and we temper that with wisdom by just meeting what we can digest. And then slowly, slowly, the circle expands. And then ultimately our success becomes defined not by the outcome, but by, by the integrity of our own process. The success becomes not whether or not the other person likes us, we agree, or even if we work it out. The success becomes, how did I conduct myself? Did I live my values? Did I show up as best as I could? And then the heart's clean. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight.